This is the best day of the week. What a joy to be worshiping together. Uh, I don't speak German, but I understand that the German language is, is wonderfully suited for combining two different ideas into a single word that just perfectly captures complex meaning and, and sentiment. And it's so good at it that a lot of times those words that get coined in German show up in English. English speakers use these words. So you've probably heard the word blitzkrieg, which is literally just lightning war to describe a type of warfare. Or maybe you've heard or used the word zeitgeist, which literally just means spirit and age, spirit of the age, kind of the, the culture. Or wonderkind, which means wonder child, a, a prodigy. Maybe my personal favorite is uh, Bachpfeifengesicht. Probably not saying it quite right, but it, it, it means a face that invites a slap. <laughs> just that slappable face. That face just looks like it needs to be slapped. Bachpfeifengesicht, I think is how Matt Glanzer corrected me. The word I'm interested in today is Weltschmerz. It's a combination of the word for world and the word for pain, world pain, or world weariness. It refers to that deep sadness and anguish that one feels specifically about the state of the world. It's one thing to feel sadness, despair, grief, but there is a kind of sadness that you feel when you look at the state of the world. And somebody coined a word for it, Weltschmerz. One professor defined it as pain suffered simultaneously both in the world and at the state of the world with the sense that the two are linked. And another describes it as a mood of weariness or sadness about life arising from the acute awareness of evil and suffering in the world. And since Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, I think it's safe to say all humans have felt some Weltschmerz to one degree or another. In fact, even if you and I have never met, I know something about you. I know that you know this world is broken. You sense it. You feel that. And that feeling can be more or less acute at different epochs in history. We're living in a time, I think, it's safe to say Weltschmerz is fairly heavy. Just take the last 13 months and think about everything that we have seen and experienced and lived through. I hardly have to remind you, a global pandemic and the surrounding panic and the protests and the riots and a contentious presidential election and then riots at the Capitol. We live in, I feel like the word I've been using for the last year, just these are interesting times. They're interesting. And, and you get the sense everything is just teetering on, on a razor's edge, don't you? I mean, tension is thick and deep fault lines have opened up between friends, people who like right next door to each other in a lot of thoughts and convictions and beliefs. And suddenly there are these deep fault lines and people are divided and polarized and freaked out. Weltschmerz. Hold on to that thought. 
when we started our series in Romans, I mentioned, and you, you may or may not remember, uh, I mentioned we would be taking breaks along the way. We, we wanted to break up Romans. It's deep, it's long, it's good, it's rich. So we thought it would be wise to just break up our journey through the epistle to the Romans into four parts. We're going to do Romans 1 through 4, take a break. Romans 5 through 8, take a break. 9 through 11, break. 12 through 16. And in between, we want to supplement our diet with brief series and other parts of Scripture. So for the next six weeks, we're going to give our attention to the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. He's the eighth of the 12 minor prophets, as they're called. And we're calling this six-part series, Trusting God in Troubled Times. Habakkuk lived through troubled times. Habakkuk learned to trust God in troubled times. Habakkuk felt Weltschmerz. And the message of Habakkuk is both timeless and timely for us today. We know less about Habakkuk than maybe any other prophet in Scripture. We don't know his hometown. We don't know his dad's name. We know him simply as Habakkuk the prophet from chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 10. What we do know is that he lived and he wrote sometime before the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem because that's predicted in chapter 1, verse Six, But he lived close enough to it that the Babylonians were an ominous threat on the horizon. They already had a growing, infamous reputation. And that invasion of Jerusalem began in 605 B.C., if that gives you some idea, 600 years before Christ. So Habakkuk is writing probably sometime toward the end of King Josiah's reign or toward the beginning of Jehoiakim's reign. Just to give you some reference, Jeremiah is a better known prophet, and Habakkuk and Jeremiah were probably alive at the same time. Probably alive around the same time, prophesying at the same time as the other minor prophets, Nahum and Zephaniah. He he lived in a time of rampant wickedness and widespread moral and spiritual and cultural decay all around him. He lived during political turmoil, both at home and abroad, uncertain times. And I think a little bit of history, backstory, goes a long way to understanding this prophet. Not long before Habakkuk, his time, there had been two extremely wicked kings in Judah, Manasseh and Ammon. Just listen to how Manasseh is described in Second Chronicles and Second Kings. He, he worshipped foreign gods. He worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. And Second Chronicles 37. 33 says this, he burned his sons, plural, as an offering, and he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers, those who communicate with the dead. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Second King says it like this, moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood Till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. You imagine being alive under a civil leader like that? Besides the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It wasn't just Manasseh. He led the whole nation and everybody joined in with the idolatry and the violence. Then Manasseh's son, Amon. 2 Chronicles 33, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had done, and he incurred guilt more and more, just piling up transgression, piling up guilt. He 
he was assassinated after two years, and there's this brief revival. If you've heard of Josiah, he became king when he was just a, a young boy. And in his days, the word of God was found in the temple. Just get your head around that. It, it had been lost for so long, people didn't even, they weren't even familiar with God's word because it had been lost, and a copy of God's law is found in the temple. And under Josiah, the temple was repaired the Passover was reinstated. Idols were destroyed. Those reforms lasted 13 years. Good times. Really, really brief, right? Just a blip on the radar. 13 years of reform. When he died, his son Jehoahaz became king. He reigned for three months. He was taken captive by Pharaoh in Egypt. And in three short months... 2 Kings 23 records, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they're right back to their old ways. So his brother Jehoiakim became king, and he too was evil. And that brings us up to the time of Habakkuk. That gives you some sense of the moral, the spiritual, the, the cultural decline in Habakkuk's time. So you can imagine the Weltschmerz that a faithful prophet like Habakkuk felt. And, and he's writing, prophesying, speaking at a time when things are already really bad. But when things are bad, you, you sometimes have a sense that they're not quite yet as bad as they could be because they're bad and getting worse. If you're cruising toward a cliff at 120 miles an hour, bumping your head against the ceiling of the car, that's bad, but it's nothing compared to hitting the bottom of the gorge. You kind of know this is bad and it's going to be really bad because of where we're going. The book of Habakkuk reads like a personal prayer journal. It records raw, honest, personal lament. Prayers. Habakkuk's own prayers. His own questions to God in prayer. It reads like a personal prayer journal. And it records this developmental process of spiritual transformation, a journey of faith maturing, Habakkuk's own faith maturing. He, he begins with questions and confusions and lament and pain at the state of the world around him, and it ends with a song of praise even though the brokenness isn't gone. It ends with praise in spite of the situation that he lived in. These are famous, familiar words. You probably recognize them. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Even though that's the situation, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's where Habakkuk ends. And one writer said, the whole value of this prophecy is its revelation of the process that leads to that song. The process 
that leads to that song. That's the aim of the book of Habakkuk, to take you on that same journey of faith and spiritual transformation and personal development from confusion to confidence, from fear to faith. And along the way, Habakkuk wrestles with the apparent contradiction between this future reality that God promises, chapter 2, verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One of my favorite promises in all of Scripture. Because it says the earth is not just going to be filled with the glory of God, it's going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, which means people who know that God is glorious and who recognize Him as glorious and worship Him and trust Him. This earth, this one that God made, this one that He gave His Son to save, this earth is going to be filled with worshipers. That's where history is going and Yet Habakkuk is wrestling with present reality that he sees with his eyes. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And it's that disconnect that causes or threatens to cause despair, defeatism, hopelessness, weltschmerz. But the Spirit of God inspired these words, not so that we would just read it and go, well, good for Habakkuk. I'm glad he ended up singing. Now, the Spirit of God inspired these words so that your faith might mature into patient, glad-hearted Faith, faith that endures troubled times with unwavering certainty that God is establishing righteousness on earth in the best possible way, the wisest possible way, despite what you see with your eyes in the world. And at the core of this book is the familiar truth, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by his faith. If that sounds familiar... That's where Paul started Romans, Romans 1.17, he quotes that. He quotes it in Galatians 3.11. It's quoted in Hebrews 10.38 as well. Over and over in the New Testament, we hear this reminder, the righteous live by faith. That's the answer Habakkuk offers to everyone who agonizes over the evil and misery in the world. And that faith is, two things about it I want you to know. It's patient faith, chapter 2, verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Patient faith. And it's glad-hearted faith. Chapter 3, verse 18. Yet, that is, in spite of current circumstances, I will rejoice. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy right now. My joy is not just a future reality, although there is an eternity of happy tomorrows promised to me at God's right hand forever, I will right now take joy in the God of my salvation. So that's where we're going. How do you get there? And Habakkuk didn't get there by flipping a switch, faking a smile. What matters is knowing how to lead yourself through that process whenever that agony, that despair, that discouragement, that fear sets in on your soul. So Let's begin. Habakkuk 1, 1 through 11. I want to invite you to stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. 
the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word through which you speak to us and reveal yourself to us, your character, your ways, your purposes, truth that we would not, could not otherwise know unless you had taken the initiative to speak to us. We need this revelation from you. May it have its full effect on our hearts that we would trust you and rejoice in you, the God of our salvation. Amen. You may be seated. Habakkuk begins with questions. The only place you can ever begin is right where you are. And Habakkuk is confused. Verses 2 and 3. He asks, O Lord, how long? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? He asks, why? Why Do you make me look at all of this iniquity? And why do you stand by idly looking at all of this wrong? How long and why are two common questions of lament? They they appear all throughout the Psalms of lament. How long and why? How long expresses fatigue, right? And why expresses confusion? How long is asked by those who sense I am coming up quickly to the end of my capacity to endure any longer. I'm I'm slipping. I feel like I'm growing weak. I'm afraid I can't hold on any longer. And and I just need to know how much longer is this going to last? And why is asked by those who feel like they're coming up to the limits of their understanding. They're looking at what they see and it makes no sense. And they think if I just had answers, it might help. How long is asking for relief and why is asking for reasons? And the two go together, right? You feel like I could maybe endure longer if I had some idea of why it's happening. What's the purpose behind it? Habakkuk laments two things here. One is what he perceives to be unanswered prayer. 
He's crying out to God, and he can't see any answer, any activity from God. He's also lamenting unpunished sin. Wickedness and evil is rampant, and it it just goes unchecked. People get away with it, and they pile up. They go from bad to worse. We might say he's lamenting divine inactivity and human injustice. How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? That's a lament that comes from somebody who's been praying for a long time. This is not Habakkuk's first prayer. Not his first time turning to God, saying, I I trust you. I I know your character. I know what you've revealed yourself to be. Do something. Do something about this brokenness, about this evil, about this injustice, about this violence. Do something and and save us, the ones who are trusting in you, who are threatened by these evildoers. Do something. From his vantage point, it looks like God is doing nothing. And so the questions come out. Does God hear Will God save? Can God save? Is God good? Those are the questions that grow in hearts that are feeling that tension. Our perception of reality does not match our confession of theology. I know doctrinally this is what I confess, but my perception of what I see out here just is not matching up and questions naturally come. And and Habakkuk is encouraging because it assures us that it's possible for faithful people to express those questions, those doubts, those fears to God as an expression of faith. Certainly you can ask questions in, in an unbelieving, accusatory way, but it's also possible to ask questions from a heart that's saying, I, I trust you, just help my unbelief. I, I don't get it. I don't Get it, and I am so aware of my limits, my limits of understanding, my limits of endurance. Help. Personally, I find such encouragement knowing faith can be expressed in questions. Sometimes that's the expression of faith. And you know it's faith because he's still going to God. Lament is directed to God in faith. The flip side of this is that Habakkuk laments human injustice that just goes unpunished. The wickedness, the immorality in in Judah prevailed without consequence. And so Habakkuk speaks of destruction and violence in verses 2 and 3. The word violence, one lexicon says, it means cold blooded infringement of the personal rights of others. It could be motivated by greed or by hate. It often makes use of physical violence and brutality, but not necessarily. It could just be with words and deception, infringing on the rights of others, doing harm to others. I think many of us would say we have seen with our eyes more scenes of destruction and brutality just on our smartphones captured in the last year than we'd ever seen in our entire lives up to this point. So we can relate. In verse 3, the prophet bemoans strife and contention arise. Those words just describe a quarrelsome, 
adversarial culture. People are polarized and civility is dead. It just sounds to me like Twitter. The, the city was rife with division and hostility. People were just quick to go to suit together, take each other to court over the smallest thing. Strife and contention everywhere. And then Habakkuk mourns in verse 4, the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice, if it does go forth, it goes forth perverted. So this is not just like secret private sin he's worried about. The, The religious and the civil authorities, the ones entrusted with enforcing God's law, they're corrupt. And so the law of God is paralyzed. It's ineffective. Nobody is restrained by it. Nobody is held in check by it. Nobody regards it. It's what Isaiah describes in Isaiah 10.1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. So not only are people ignoring God's justice, they are now passing laws that pervert justice. So it's institutionalized. But Habakkuk understood that justice is always defined by God's law. Not by feelings, not by personal opinions or preferences. The world is broken because, this is crucial, because God's law is broken. The world looks broken because it is, and it's broken because humans break God's law. His law is violated, and that is what pained Habakkuk. I mean, anyone can get hot and bothered when they are personally inconvenienced by something. I think a lot of the reaction to face masks this year is just mainly personal inconvenience of it, right, for a lot of people. True lament is grieved when God is dishonored, when God's law is broken. When Habakkuk says the wicked surround the righteous in verse 4, he's not talking about a group hug. They surround them to shut them down. The righteous are outnumbered. Wickedness is is everywhere. So cancel culture is nothing new. I I wonder if Habakkuk was familiar with, if he had in mind specifically something that happened to the prophet Jeremiah, recorded in Jeremiah 26, 8 through 9. Listen to this scene. Jeremiah was given a word from God and told, go into the temple and declare this word. When Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets... And all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. The wicked surround and shut down the righteous. So Habakkuk saying, There's no hope. There's nothing more we can do. We have exhausted all of our means. If anything is going to happen, it has to come from God, and it doesn't look like he's doing anything. That's where Habakkuk's journey begins. Prayers are unanswered. Evil is unpunished. It looks like all hope is lost, and that's where God meets Habakkuk. There's a change of tone in verse 5. It's clear that now God is speaking. God is answering the questions. And what's so encouraging is that it assures us if that's where you are, when that's where you are, That's where God meets you. Look at verses 5 and 6. God speaks to Habakkuk and says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. 
For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. God's response to Habakkuk reveals glorious, comforting truths about who God is and how God works. He says, look, see, wonder, be astounded in verse 5, heaping up this invitation to see what's actually happening behind the scenes. In Hebrew, the words translated here, wonder and be astounded, are actually just two forms of the same word, as if God had said, stare in astonishment and be astounded. The idea is, what I'm doing is completely unexpected to you. I'm doing something. I am at work. And that captures the main point of this text, which is that even if prayers seem unanswered, even if sin seems unpunished, even if you can't see, and you often don't, even if you can't understand God's timing or God's ways, you can be assured that God is always, always working sovereignly and justly, rightly. And in His wisdom, God is always working in history to accomplish His glorious purposes. That contrast, despite what you see, God is working. That's the point of this text. And there's always a, a mammoth gulf between the situation as we perceive it and reality as God sees it and knows it. And that gap, part of it's because we're finite creatures. Part of it's because we're sinful. And in our remaining sin, we, we don't think like God thinks. That gap can only be bridged by God. God's revelation. And that's what we have here in Habakkuk and in the 65 other books of Scripture. Verse 1, it's easy to skip over. Look carefully. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. An oracle is a, a, a term for a prophetic utterance, a, a solemn speech delivered with a raised voice. These are weighty words. These are not just Habakkuk spouting off his opinions on current affairs. He has been given, the, the, the word actually literally means a burden, a weight. These are words from God with authority, and they're delivered by Habakkuk, the prophet, who spoke words given to him by God. He spoke not what he thought, what he imagined. He spoke what he saw. Something was revealed to him by God. That's where clarity for Habakkuk comes from, God's revelation. And this is where we receive divine perspective to understand and to endure troubled times that we live in. This is where we find the precious and very great promises of God to which we cling by faith. We need God's word and what God reveals here is who he is and what he's doing. God reveals that he's always working. From Habakkuk's limited, finite human vantage point, he saw only violence, wickedness, destruction, no sign of judgment on the wicked, no sign of salvation or help on the horizon for the righteous. But God was not inactive or idle as Habakkuk feared. Verses 5 and 6, I am doing a work in your days. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. There's a play on words here in God's response to Habakkuk. Verse 3, Habakkuk asked, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? God's answer, 
Look and see. You do the looking. I'm working, and I'm going to show you what I'm doing. Habakkuk asked whether God saw the evil going on. God invites Habakkuk to see behind the scenes. When it looks like God is not answering, not working, not restraining evil, you can be sure you're the one who doesn't see it all. God is not the the one who's blind. He's not the one who's checked out. And God reveals to Habakkuk that his timing is perfect. Verse 5, he says, I'm doing a work in your days. In your days. God's not slow. He's patient. He's patient. We we heard this in Romans. He's not willing that any should perish. He's so incredibly patient with us so that we might come to repentance. His anger is not just hot wrath flying off the hinge. He wants people to repent. And so he gives them gracious warning after gracious warning. And then at the right time, according to his wisdom, God works in history. This is important to get because I think a lot of Christians say, I know there will be a final judgment. I know at the end of history, God will do something about problems in the world. But God acts in history, throughout history, again and again. He has not taken his hands off of this and say, I'll be back with you down the road when it's all over to clean it up. No, there are limits. God puts limits. I mean, just think of even Hitler and the Nazis. And as awful as that was, where are they now? God put an end to them. There are limits to evil and evildoers in history, and God acts in time. Not only at the end of the world. He does that too. That's our ultimate hope. But he's working in the world today. And you can be sure of that. God reveals that he is just. All of his works are just. He, he raised up the Babylonians to put an end to Judah's sin. And his judgment fits the crime. That's how justice works. The punishment fits the crime. Look how specifically God responds to Habakkuk. Verse 2, Habakkuk cried out, Violence! God takes that same word and he uses it in verse 9 to describe the Babylonians who are coming. They all come for violence. Those who do violence will suffer violence. And they can hardly cry out, that's unfair. They themselves are violating everyone around them. And so when it happens to them, what excuse will they have? Habakkuk lamented in verse 4, justice never goes forth. God answers in verse 7 about the Babylonians. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. This is a little terrifying. This situation was in Judah. There's no justice. Everybody does whatever they want. The punishment coming from the Babylonians is a terrifying people who are totally autonomous, a law unto themselves. They are unrestrained by the Geneva Conventions. They don't respect any international humanitarian laws governing war. They just do whatever's right in their own eyes. And it's terrifying. But again, for people who have rejected God's law, what are they going to say? This is unfair? According to what standard? They've already rejected the only standard of justice that exists. God hands people over to their sin. That is 
the judgment. That's one of the ways that God's judgment is revealed in history. You reject God's word, then stumbling around in the dark, stubbing your toe and falling off of cliffs is the judgment. And God reveals to Habakkuk and to us that he sovereignly uses all things, all things to accomplish his righteous purposes. The answer to Habakkuk's prayer came from the most unexpected place. I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe even if you were told. I mean, when we ask why questions, that our naivete is that we imagine somehow if we just had the answers, we would understand them. When the reality is often that even if we had the answers, we wouldn't believe them. What's going on here is that God is going to use evil people, and unpleasant situations to bring about his purposes. He says in verse 5, look among the nations. Look to the Gentiles. That's where the answer is going to come from. That is totally off the radar for Habakkuk. When he's thinking about how God works, how God might reveal his glory and his justice and his goodness, he's not thinking Gentiles are coming. But that's what God is going to do. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. And then the rest of this oracle goes on to elaborate just how bitter and just how hasty they are. They plunder what's not theirs, verse 6. They, they are dreadful and terrifying, verse 7. Violence is a sport to them, something they do for fun, verses 9 through 10. They are arrogant. They are idolatrous. The, the point of this is to warn the guilty God's judgment is coming and there is no escape. And also to encourage the faithful that come what may, God's hand is in this. The, the text is clear. Even though the Chaldeans are evil, God is the one who sovereignly raised them up to be his instrument of justice against Judah. God reigns over all things, including those who do evil. And he's able to wield them in such a way that he never does evil. But evil people who mean to do evil things for evil reasons, God wields that to accomplish his righteous and good and just and holy purposes. All things serve him, which is a great comfort to those who trust God. That means no president no power, no pandemic, no, nothing is a surprise to God. He's wielding all of it. Right now, all of our present circumstances, he's wielding for his good and his glory and for our joy and for our salvation, for the purity of his church. We can be confident that the way things are right now, God in his wisdom knows exactly what his church needs. He knows what the world needs. He knows what warnings the world needs. And when you're convinced that God sovereignly rules all of history like that, that he's always working justly, then you can endure with patient, glad-hearted faith the worst suffering and misery that you may ever experience. The ultimate assurance of that, that God uses all things, sovereignly rules over all of it, subjugates evil to fulfill his good design, is this, that just as God raised up the, the Babylonians, I mean, they, they came out of nowhere. They were virtually unknown, and within 20 years, they had conquered the known world. And then a few decades later, they were gone. 
<laughs> just raised up by God to accomplish his purpose and then gone. Just as he raised up the unrighteous Babylonians to accomplish his righteous purposes, God subjugated the worst evil in history, the most wicked sin the world has ever known, the murder of the Son of God to accomplish the redemption of the world. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Was it lawless men or was it the plan of God? And in Scripture, there's just no, no tension there. Yes. Crucified and killed by lawless men according to the definite plan of God for the forgiveness of your sins. That's when we look to the cross, that's when we wonder. That's when we are astounded and amazed and assured. Not only is God doing a work in our day, God has finished a work that is beyond what we could ever comprehend. In fact, Paul cites Habakkuk 1.5 when he proclaims the gospel in Acts 13. Listen to these words. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That's the gospel. Forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ. That's God's remedy for a broken world. And Paul says, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets in Habakkuk in particular, lest that should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work you will not believe, even if one tells you. So Habakkuk echoes down through history as the gospel is proclaimed in the world today, and it says to the world, watch out. The certainty of God's judgment 26, 2700 years ago should guarantee to you that if you reject Jesus, there is no escape. There is no other pardon for your sins. There's no other way to be right with God. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but trust God. Trust his perfect providence. Trust his just judgment. Trust his wise discipline. Trust his glorious gospel and his only son, our Lord. Jesus Christ. God is filling this earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, and he's doing it perfectly according to his time, his wisdom, his ways, no matter what you see with your eyes. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. How else would we know you unless you, by your initiative and your pleasure, your grace and your kindness, spoke to us in spite of our sin and our guilt, though we deserve your wrath, you are so merciful and patient and kind to speak, to warn, to invite, to work in history, to save people and nations. 
We pray that you would have all of the worship and the praise that you deserve from every tribe and every language and every people on earth, world without end. Amen.